Well, good morning. There were two fish in a tank. And one said to the other, Can you dry this thing? It's <laughs> <laughs> one of my favourite jokes. And I tell it as often as I think I can get away with it. Part of, partly it's evidence that I don't have a particularly sophisticated sense of humour. I do know that. Partly it's proof, apparently, that I am a dad. I can say this with confidence because my children assure me that all my jokes are as bad as that. And I tell lots of dad jokes and they feel this is a bad thing. I say it's my job. If I'm going to be a dad, I have to tell dad jokes. I also dance very, very badly, just to complete the set. It's part of being a dad. There are lots of dads around, and sometimes we have to stick up for each other. I'm not just a dad. I'm also a pastor, a pastor of a church in Kent called Metham Green Baptist Church. And I'm a student. I'm fortunate, yeah, fortunate enough to sit alongside Rich. <laughs> stick with that. Uh, before I was a student and a pastor, I worked in local government. And before that, yes, I'll skip quickly on from that. Before that, I was a journalist for about six years. All of those things give me an identity. I belong with dads, and with journalists, and with students, and with pastors, and fortunately for all of us who are people who work in local government, we kind of need each other's support. Each and every one of us has a sense of identity with the things that are around us. Let me show you how it works. What I want you to do is cheer, as loud as you reasonably can without feeling embarrassed, uh, if I name a thing that you feel you belong to. Okay, so I might say, I'm a dad, and all the dads in the room will cheer. Let's give it a go. I'm a dad. Hey. I am a son. Hey. I am a middle child. I watched the Great British Bake Off. Hey. I really, really don't like Marmite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tread carefully at this point. I support, for better or worse, the England rugby team. Yeah. <laughs> I squeeze the end of the toothpaste because it's wrong to squeeze from the middle. Yay! But what has any of that got to do with Jesus? After all, the Bible does not give us any clues at all about which rugby team Jesus supported or where he squeezed his toothpaste. There are a couple of things that I want us to take a little look at at this passage from Luke 10, which, uh, as Rich mentioned, is referred to as the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'd like, first of all, to take a, a moment to look at the lead-up to this passage. Now, I will at this point say that when I'm at my home church, we start at 11 o'clock. So I'm looking at the clock going, it's only 25 past. For ages. And I did think, I did think, possibly, you know, starting a little bit earlier than I'm used to, maybe a good, solid, chunky hour of hard-nosed preaching is what you were looking for. Rich told me that wasn't necessarily the way you guys play the game. So I will try and bring it down to near, what did you say, 45 minutes, 40? A bit less than that? He won't, he won't, he won't be that. We've all got over to tell me to this point. So we're going to look at the lead up to this passage very quickly. You can see, when you look at a famous story like this, 
that it can be looked at as something that stands by itself. You know the story, on its own, if someone asks you to tell it, you could probably tell most of it without having to look it up. But the bigger, wider story always makes more sense uh, when you put the bits together. So, for example, those of you who watch films or read books may have come across The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. If you've seen the film, it's the one where all the horses right out at the end of the film off the side of the valley, one of my favourite bits. And it's a brilliant story in its own right, but it makes a lot more sense if you've looked at The Fellowship of the Ring first. And actually, if you then see the return of the king is the third installment, the two towers works much better. So exciting in its own right, but needs the whole concept. So here's the story. In Luke 9, going back to it, Peter says, Jesus is the Christ. Peter is the one who's also called Simon. He and his brother called fish for a living. The Bible account suggests he was a bit of a loudmouth and a hothead. And Jesus called him and his brother the sons of thunder. So Peter says, Jesus is the Christ. And after this, Jesus is revealed in his glory on a mountaintop with Elijah and Moses. At which point, God announces that Jesus is his son. So, in those two episodes, Jesus is recognised for who he is, the saviour of the Jews and the son of God. After that, Jesus is shown to have power over demons. This is still in Luke 9. At the end of Luke 9, Jesus explains that following him comes at a cost. And then he sends a whole bunch of his followers out, either 70 or 72, depending on how good your Greek is, to go to various towns and villages, to be his messengers, and to heal people, and to announce that Jesus is coming and peace is coming. So, if we put those episodes together, in the run-up to this Good Samaritan piece, we might say this. In Luke's Gospel, the author is stating that Jesus is the Saviour. He's making it clear that Jesus is also the Son of God. He's showing that Jesus has authority over everything, including demons, and he's explaining that following Jesus comes with enormous opportunity and also with cost. Summarising that, we see who Jesus is and we hear what it means to follow him. And then we get this story, the Good Samaritan Exchange. The story helps us understand what it means to follow Jesus. But it's not just a fable. It's not a morality tale. This is a story with a challenge. I think for those of us who know the story by itself, it's very easy to say that the purpose of the story is to say this is how you should treat people. Be a nice person. Help people when they're in trouble. And those things are true, but I don't think it's all of what Jesus was trying to get across here. The story was told in answer to a religious expert, and its meaning was for him to understand and those who were around him as a tutor at college, who Rich and I studied under, who says the Bible only ever means what it meant to the people who heard it at the time. We don't start there and understand it ourselves from that point, then we're missing the reason why we're supposed to look at it. So to get to the bottom of that meaning, we need to understand how Jesus handled the questions he was asked. So let's have a quick look at the text. If you have your Bible with you, uh, by your hand or under your chair or whatever else, uh, feel free to look at this with me. Verse 25, the expert asks, I do wish they'd put names in. I'd love to have known what name the expert had. And I was tempted to make one up to make it easier for me to explain, but I thought that might be um, heresy, maybe. 
frown upon. So the expert says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a normal, common question for a Jew to ask a teacher or a rabbi. It's also a way to put the teacher on the spot to find out what he actually thought, check what his credentials were. And this is what's happening here. The man asking the question wants to see if he can catch Jesus out. One version of verse 25 says, a lawyer got up and put Jesus on the spot. Jesus responds with a question. He says, what do you think? And the response in verse 27 actually comes straight out of Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, and Leviticus 19, verse 18. I could pretend that I just know those references. I have to look them up. Jesus is okay with the response. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. So then why do we get the next question in verse 29? Who is my neighbour? The phrase used in the NIV here is the man wanted to justify himself. But again, that's not the only way of understanding what's happening here. He wasn't trying to explain why he was asking the question. He's trying to win the point. Okay, I've got your answer, Jesus, but I want to score again. The challenge that the expert is putting to Jesus is this. I dare you to say that non-Jews can inherit eternal life. You see, Jesus has a reputation at this point. You have to go back to before chapter 9 to see it. But in his work in Galilee, he showed he includes people. He doesn't stop up well-behaved Jewish folks. But this expert asking the question, eternal life is about Jewish people. And in his answer, in the story that Jesus tells, he turns the question around. And instead of, who is my neighbour, it becomes, whose neighbour am I? The story itself is very familiar. The man travels away from Jerusalem and towards Jericho. It's a long, steep drop from one to the other. From a city on a hill to a riverside settlement. And that's why it says he was going down. It's not the same as going along. You might say, I'm going down to the shops, whether they are uphill or not. But in this instance, the audience knew the road. They would all use the road once or twice a year to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So going down means going down. The man is stopped, beaten, and stripped, and robbed by bandits. That's verse 30. The priest and the Levites, who are also heading down that road, away from Jerusalem, don't stop. Verses 31 to 32. And these two, the priest and the Levite, are exactly the kind of people that this expert in the law would think of as his neighbour. They belong to the same tribe as him. They are good, clean, faithful, religious Jews. They are children of Abraham, and the promised land belongs to them. It's a real one-of-us feel to these wise and noble gentlemen walking down that road. But they opt out. And then along comes the Samaritan. And the difference between Jews and Samaritans is really very easy to understand in modern terms. You look at the difference now between Israelis and Palestinians, about how they feel about each other and how good they are at getting on, and you've got a pretty good impression of the way Jews and Samaritans felt about each other. So along comes this Samaritan, and he puts his time and his money and his energy and his future resources on the line 
for his injured, naked enemy. Verses 33 to 35. But the Samaritan, the tribe he belonged to, did not get in the way. And he was able to love beyond the boundary. Now, as we saw at the start, I can be pretty tribal. I got you to cheer for things that I identify with. Made me feel pretty good. And I think most of us tend to be pretty tribal. I'm very tribal about how you squeeze your toothpaste, and my wife squeezes it in the wrong <coughs> plate. I do think most of us tend to be quite tribal about something. Like, being a middle child matters to me a lot. I have three children, and my middle child, my daughter Beth, is particularly precious to me. I don't have favourites. I have a son and two daughters. Uh, my, eldest is, my eldest is just brilliant. My youngest is my son, which is brilliant. And my middle child, my middle child. So she knows how it feels to be me. And I think it's worth us taking a moment, just for a second, to think about the tribes to which you belong. Jesus was faced with someone asking, who is my neighbour? And if our reaction to this parable is to ask ourselves the same question, who is my neighbour, then actually we entirely miss the point Jesus is trying to make. Jesus doesn't tell this expert in the law that he needs to go and serve Samaritans. He's not asking the man to focus his attention on the opposite of who he is. Because loving your neighbour is not about zoning in on something. So if we respond by asking who would be my neighbour, then we do miss Jesus' point. Jesus was saying it's not about who. It's about the love that you have and how you demonstrate it. This is why the question of your tribe is so important. Most people, as I suggested earlier, belong to more than one tribe. But for me to illustrate the point I think Jesus is trying to make, we're going to sort of behave as if one tribe is all that matters. So I'm going to show you, hopefully, uh, an illustration of how your tribe and your love interact and the difference it makes. Okay. I'm going to need, Rich, you can be a helper. Go to someone to do a job in a minute. Sorry, I don't need you just yet. Um, but you'll see why I can be doing it. And for this to work, you need to have some ability to see more or less sort of below where my knees are. Is it worth me going up? Probably. Do you want to come over? Here we go. Here's my tribe. All right. Let's say that represents uh, fathers. Okay. Um, I get on with other fathers quite well because I belong to the father tribe.
can you see? Not a lot. A little bit around the top, but not very much. You have to pour out an awful lot of love in order to, for anybody outside my side to be able to see it. Eventually, I work really hard, pouring out lots of love, eventually some of it starts spilling out outside. Most of it stays in. There we go. I'm going to keep some love for myself. There we go. I can show an awful lot of love, but if I'm stuck in my tribe with people who are like me, who know what I'm like and I feel comfortable with, everybody else gets to see very much of my love. Which is sad. Now here we go. There's all that love. It's still all my love, though. Rich. <laughs> now we're going to pretend that Rich isn't in my tribe, even though he is a student and also a pastor. Um, he's, he's from outside my tribe, and I want to show love to him. Because he's outside my tribe, there's nothing. You know, there's a showing it to those who are in your tribe already, who you already belong to and with. If that's as far as your love goes, thank you. Being loved. <laughs> if I go outside my border, then my love overflows. Thank you. If you could do them all, that'd be lovely. <laughs> Just one at a time. Unless I'm pouring loads and loads of love out, it will never overflow. If I step outside my tribe, my love goes everywhere. And that might end up looking a bit messy. But that's okay, look, some of this love's ended up under people's feet. It's bounced off people. It's rolled far away from where I am. But that can't happen if you stay within your borders. So what does that mean in real life? It's all very well pouring colourful kind of balls all over a church where you're visiting and probably you won't have to be involved in tidy up at all. But what does it mean in real life? Well I think firstly it means challenging your own assumptions. People outside your tribe are no better or worse than you are. In fact spiritually in all important ways they're exactly the same as you are. All of us need Jesus. So first, challenge your own assumptions. Second, step outside your tribe. Find people who disagree with you. You see the world differently. Spend time with them. Learn to discover things we like about people we disagree with. That makes us stronger. And it helps us to grow. And it teaches us about acceptance. Third, so first, challenge your assumptions. Second, Step outside your tribe. Third, examine your tribe. Take a good long look at what your tribe is actually like. Don't stop at whether you feel comfortable there. Look at what they stand for. Do you agree with all of it? You might discover that the people you identify with would walk by on the other side, even if you've been left for dead. 
That doesn't mean you should abandon them. But it might encourage you to look outward a bit more. Jesus says, your neighbour is anyone. Jesus says, your neighbour is beyond your tribe. Jesus says, your neighbour is found wherever people are in need. And you should love them. Let me finish with a story. Uh, and at this point, I need my foot chart. My foot chart. Your foot chart. It's going to fall apart if you get it. Let's make sure I don't trip on any awful balls in the way in the game. Once upon a time, there was a building. Here it is. I'm no artist. Okay? It was an old building and it was divided up into flats. And there were dozens of them. And they came in different sizes because it is a very old building. Some had been knocked through. So instead of having one flat, you might have three in a row. Go, with a balcony on the outside. In fact, that's the balcony, if you're not sure. Look like an L-shaped balcony. Others were little. So where one flat had been, it was divided into two rooms so that extra people could live in it. And there were flats throughout this building of various sizes. Now, of course, the ones higher up with better views were larger. And the ones lower down were quite small. Very big building. Okay, that's that's true. There's the building for the flats. Some had big windows and glass doors, and others were more like dungeons with no light. Here's the ground level here. And one day. One day, a big storm happened and there was a massive bolt of lightning that hit the corner of the building. And it was so powerful that it sent a power surge through the building. And the building catches fire. There it is. And very quickly, because electrical fires can be like this, the fire spread throughout the building, going everywhere. Lots of bits of the building and lots of flats and rooms are on fire very quickly. It's looking bad for the building. Fortunately, a passing off-duty firefighter sees what's happening. Here he is. I call him Joshua. And he rushes into the building. And he goes from flat to flat, and from room to room. He waits people, he calls people, he leads people, and he coaxes people out. And everyone escapes. Here they all are. I could keep going for a long time. There were a lot of flats and rooms and floors. And there they all are on the roadside outside. 
Flames continue to roar through the building, and it is utterly destroyed. Down on the road, the people are milling about. They have nowhere to go. They are safe, and they are alive, but they have no home anymore. Except that the building where the firefighter lives is empty. And everyone is invited to move in, but no one has had time to bring anything with them. They have nothing. And they start talking to each other. Some of them haven't even met before. Some of them haven't seen each other, even though they live in the same building, because there's such a variety between those big flats and those tiny rooms. The only thing they have in common is that they have been rescued from certain death. And while they used to belong to a certain floor or a flat or a room, now they do not. They no longer belong to where they came from. Where once they were neighbours, they are now a community, a family of people who have been saved and share the same home. It's not a subtle story. When Jesus saves us from the mess we make of our life, when he rescues us from our sin and from our death, we no longer belong to where we came from. We only belong to him and the home he invites us to share. There are no tribes among Jesus' family. So let your love go out to all the world, all of them, every single one.